Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air with you guys, and uh, hard to believe that tomorrow is Friday. It's also hard to believe that in a few days from now it will be Easter Sunday. In this uh, particular segment uh, to uh, Kirkpatrick Sales' book, The Fire of His Genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream, we're going to be uh, learning uh, more about Robert Fulton's early upbringing years. Because I know most of you uh, are probably getting to this point now where you're thinking to yourselves, you know, we've learned more about him in his present state in terms of what he is achieving come 1807. And yet here we are learning more about how he um, will get to his crowning achievement in the summer of 1807. But I figured in this uh, particular podcast segment... For tonight that we really need to learn more about Robert Fulton's early years. In other words, we need to find out like what year he was born. We also need to figure out if he uh, was born in Europe or if he was uh, born in America. You know, we need to figure out uh, what kind of jobs he held. I mean, yes, you know, when we think of Robert Fulton, we tend to think of him as this engineer, inventor, but is it fair to say that even um, engineers and inventors in the 18th century as well as 19th probably had other uh, jobs before they went on to um, before they went on to uh, achieve um, feats of um, historical um, proportions? Yes, or what maybe most people would say epical or epic proportions. So the bottom line is we're going to learn uh, a lot of odds and ends, or rather maybe I should say the ins and outs of who Robert Fulton really was uh, when um, he was growing up during his early formative years. Because, you know, all of us have to start from somewhere. Um, you know, yes, when we read about people who, who have attained fame, we think that, um, that their stardom just happened overnight. No, um, it's one thing to earn fame, but like anything else in life, you have to work for it. You know, if you don't work for it, then how can you really appreciate the hard work? So I think we're going to be in for a, um, for a good, uh, what I might like to say, a good roller coaster ride um, in this uh, segment because we're going to learn um, exactly, um, we're going to learn things that, we didn't uh, anticipate on learning about Robert Fulton uh, with regards to his uh, early years, but we should also, um, I should also point out that we'll also be learning uh, where Fulton goes, um, goes, I, I would say, uh, once he's around the age of 15 and onward, because um, to me that is important because, um, you know, it's one thing to be an engineer or an inventor but you do have to start out probably doing other jobs before becoming something that you know that you want to be successful at, not just short-term, but long-term, to where um, you can make an impact not only for yourself, but for others around you. So our first uh, lead-off question is going to be um, one that will involve, will involve two parts. So let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and uh, get ready to go for uh, another uh, exciting Segment to the fire of his genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream. All right, uh, part um, one of um, our first leadoff question is the following. 
In which of Britain's 13 American colonies did Robert Fulton hail from? I'll give you all some choices because we have to remember in uh, colonial America, there are 13, uh, obviously there are 13 American colonies, but they're pretty much divided. They're pretty much uh, categorized into three regions, northern, middle, and southern. But of course, at the same time, when I think of southern colonies, I think of um, upper south and lower south. Of course, when I think of upper south, that's Virginia and North Carolina, and the lower south being South Carolina and Georgia. So I'm, I'm going to give you three choices, and the choices will be one from each region. So uh, choice A, um, did Robert Fulton hail from uh, the following? Uh, choice A being uh, New Hampshire, choice B, Pennsylvania, or choice C, South Carolina. So your choices are the following. Uh, choice A, New Hampshire. Choice B, Pennsylvania. Choice C, South Carolina. The answer is choice B, uh, Pennsylvania. So Robert Fulton hailed from what we would have called back then in colonial days a middle colony. So Robert Fulton hailed from uh, Pennsylvania. He was born on a farm in what in a township that still exists today. I looked it up uh, not um, the other day to confirm if, in fact, this township uh, was still around, and it is. It's called Little Britain Township. It's uh, located uh, in present-day um, southeastern Lancaster County, or what others would say Lancaster. But during Fulton's time, uh, Little Britain Township was 20 miles south of Lancaster. And uh, Lancaster is just on the outskirts of uh, Harrisburg, but not too terribly far from the uh, Pennsylvania-Maryland line. Uh, I should probably say that Lancaster is not too far from uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania either, too. And, of course, when we think of Hershey, PA, what do we think of, folks? Well, Hershey, PA was named after uh, Mr. Milton Hershey, uh, the founder of uh, Hershey's Chocolate Candies. But, of course, there was no Hershey Count, Hershey, Pennsylvania, when Robert Fulton was alive. So let's uh, keep that in mind. So, yes, Robert Fulton is from Pennsylvania. And, uh, yes, he's from a place called Little Britain uh, Township. It's uh, not too terribly far, uh, not only from the uh, Pennsylvania-Maryland line, but also uh, from uh, Pennsylvania, on the line of uh, Pennsylvania uh, and Delaware. And I should point that out because, you know, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is not far from uh, the Pennsylvania-Delaware uh, as well as Pennsylvania-New Jersey line uh, for geographical purposes there. So the uh, second part to our first leadoff question is the following. Was Robert Fulton born between 1760 and 1770? Do any of you all think that Robert Fulton was born between that time frame of 1760 and 1770? Now the answer is yes. Uh, Robert Fulton was born on November the 14th of 1765. Uh, folks, let's keep in mind here, um, is colonial America um, in the era of what's called the uh, post-French and Indian War era during this time? Yes because the Seven Years' War ended two years earlier in 1763. Is it safe to say that uh, when Robert Fulton is born into uh, the world, is it safe to say that America and her, um, and her uh, ruler, being that of uh, 
King George III, um, uh, Britain, would you say that, um, that there is uh, a lot of strife between um, England and the uh, colonies? Well, when I think of a strife in uh, 1765, there's one piece of legislation that comes to my mind that Parliament passed. Parliament passed that uh, infamous Stamp Act. The Stamp Act, um, you know, when, whenever I think of the Stamp Act, uh, it's, it's more than just um, stamps. Yes, the Stamp Act involved uh, placing uh, stamps not just for um, you know personal postage use, but it required that all paper documents, whether it was a, a marriage license, um, anything paper like you know cards, um, uh, think about it. Just anything that you would that people would have used on a daily basis that would have involved uh, paper. But but the bottom line is everything is being um, what do you call it? when the um, the material gets brought to the uh, colonies it. There will be stamp collectors, and these aren't people who are collecting stamps for fun, folks. They are the ones who will be the one be uh, placing the stamps on all legal documents. But it will be at the tax, it will be at the uh, colonists' expense. But the bottom line is that there it was no uh, proper representation in the eyes of the colonists. They didn't send anyone from on their soil over to England to uh, debate the matter and speak on behalf of the constituents 3,000 miles across the ocean. So basically the Stamp Act resulted in an infamous rally cry known as taxation without representation. You know, John Adams um, was known to have said the following, it's one thing to tax an Englishman, but in order to tax an Englishman, you must get his consent. In other words, yes, you can enact uh, legislation, but if you don't enact legislation without the consent of the subjects whom are being governed from below, then what you have put into law without the people's consent from below should be null and void. In other words, there was no fair deal or what we would call a fair and proper agreement or a mutual agreement on both sides. Well, um, if there's any good news that came out of this is that come the start of 1766, Parliament uh, repealed the Stamp Act. But of course, that, but of course the joy was short-lived. Um, so for Robert Fulton, it is fair to say that he is growing up in a world where it's nothing like what it is today. But it is fair to say that for Robert Fulton, he is growing up in a world where over time, the, um, the tensions will continue to escalate. They will continue to um, grow without any clear resolution in sight between Britain and her subjects below, being the 13 colonies. Now, uh, Robert Fulton um, w was not an only child, folks. He had three sisters and a brother. His family was of Irish origin. Robert's father was uh, Robert Fulton Sr., so hey, young Robert is Robert Fulton Jr. Robert's father uh, worked primarily as a tailor. Does anybody know what a tailor um, does? In colonial times, a tailor was someone whom um, specialized in, um, in, in clothing. 
In other words, um, if you went to see the tailor, the tailor would be the one whom would, um, whom would go about um, seeing to it that you were fitted uh, properly for a, um, for fine, uh, you know, you know, basically to, to wear, uh, not just wear clothes, but a tailor would be the one to uh, measure you uh, for like what kind of, um, just basically uh, the tailor is someone that you would go to uh, for um, essential uh, clothing needs. Let me, let me put that best in the best way um, in an easier um, description. But then again, could we still go to a tailor today? We could. It just may not be as it may not be completely the same like it was in colonial times, though. So, Robert Fulton's father was a tailor, but he did experience um, being a farmer. And I hate to tell you all this, but Robert Fulton's father um, did not have a whole lot of success with being a farmer. As a matter of fact, it was so bad that um, Fulton Sr. lost his lost the entire um, farm property in 1772 and by around that time uh, Robert Jr. is about seven years old so the family had uh, before uh, 17 before the fallout with losing um, farm property in 1772 the family had left Lancaster and so therefore because they lost this lost the farm property they were forced to move back to Lancaster but the problem is that there was no money so think about it, the Fulton family might as well be bankrupt uh, sadly uh, Robert's uh, father died in 1774 and he left little for his family including no will you know it's one thing to lose your property but on the other hand, it's one thing to, for a family member to pass away, being a parent, in this case the father, and the father doesn't leave anything um, for his family. In other words, no will. In other words, who's going to inherit uh, what um, pieces of um, what we might call tangibles or um, household accessories, um, Nothing like modern-day accessories, but, you know, who's going to be inheriting uh, what items? In other words, none of that has been left, um, none of that has been left for the family to even be able to uh, know um, how to go forward. So, Robert Fulton uh, Jr.'s not even, uh, he's just shy of 10 years old uh, by the time his father dies in 1774. So how many years did uh, young uh, Robert Fulton live in Lancaster after his father's passing? I'll give you some choices. Did he live there for five years? Did he live there for ten? Or did he live there uh, for fifteen? The answer is choice B. He lived there for ten years. Now, um, Lancaster, folks, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that's uh, close to uh, Harrisburg, which is uh, Pennsylvania's uh, capital. Now, uh, during the time that Fulton um, was growing up as a young boy, how big uh, was Lancaster? Well, I, I'll give you uh, some choices to choose from. Uh, was Lancaster home to 25,000 people? Was it home to 12,000 people? Or was it home to 4,000 people? The town of Lancaster was home to 4,000 people, being choice C. 
the majority of these people um, whom lived in uh, Lancaster, or rather I should say the majority of the 4,000 people living in Lancaster, worked primarily as craftsmen and mechanics. Okay, when I think of uh, craftsmen and mechanics, uh, craftsmen to me at this time usually might involve woodworking. Mechanics might refer to... Um, referring to what we might think of as in today's time as like doing the nuts and bolts. In other words, mechanics could mean um, how to go about ensuring that um, that um, that a wheel, that a wheel that you would have to place on a wagon will um, move uh, properly, uh, not just going uh, forward um, in a straight direction, but how will the wheel, um, will the wheels be properly aligned to where the wagon will um will go forward without breaking apart. So yes, uh, Lancaster is uh, home to roughly 4,000 people who work primarily as craftsmen and mechanics, but they're, um, but they're making um, product um, most notably that pertains to wagon wheels. Did I mention something about wagon wheels a moment ago, folks? I sure did. Could there be a reason why I did? Yes, and we'll find that out here in just a second. The reason why wagon wheels in this in around the greater Lancaster area are being made at a rapid um, rate is because, for one, there's a river nearby called the Conestoga River. But the type of wagons that are being made are what we refer to as Conestoga wagons. There was a westward movement uh, that was taking place um, just before and just shy of when um, shots were first uh, fired around the world um, in April of 1775 up in uh, Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. But the Conestoga wagons played an essential part of uh, what was called a westward movement, and we're not talking from, say, Pennsylvania to present-day Ohio or Illinois or Indiana, but how about a westward movement that went from, say, eastern Pennsylvania, being present-day Philadelphia, to um, the to Virginia's Shenandoah Valley? So we might think of it as a westward or a southwesterly uh, movement. Why were people going from Pennsylvania to into the Shenandoah Valley? Well. One of the biggest reasons why uh, people were um, venturing in a southwesterly direction into Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, it was largely in part because there needed to be um, establishments settled in what we know as Virginia's um, present-day Shenandoah Valley to ensure that the frontier would be uh, protected from uh, further, or what we might think of as from Indian in, from outside attacks um, amongst uh, Indian uh, nations, most notably in the present-day Northwest Territory of uh, what we now know as Ohio, because uh, the Shawnees and the Delawares uh, were known for raiding uh, Virginia's frontier in the Shenandoah Valley, along with uh, the Mingo uh, Nation in uh, what we now know as present-day West Virginia. So the bottom line is people were going from, uh, from uh, what do you call it, present-day Eastern uh, Pennsylvania, or uh, central PA and coming in a southwesterly direction, they would uh, basically travel through uh, what we now know as present-day Frederick, Maryland, um, 
They would uh, be going through present-day Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, maybe Frostburg, uh, what we now know as the Catoctin Mountains, where uh, present-day Camp David is. So they would be following that uh, path uh, to eventually settle into places that we know in Virginia, in the northern end of Virginia, Shenandoah Valley, most notably being like Winchester, Strasburg, uh, Cross Junction, um, just to name uh, Maury Town, just to name a few of, uh, of the unique uh, spots in uh, Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, most notably in the northern end of that uh, region. So, um, yes, yeah, so that's why um, Lancaster is so important because uh, that's where the Conestoga uh, wagons are being built, and, and not just the wagons being built, but people are, are migrating westward uh, to settle in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Now, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I should also point out, served as a vital armament center. Armament, folks, you know, think about it. Provisions, provisions in the forms of uh, weaponry. So, Lancaster, PA, is serving as a vital armament center where gunsmiths were constantly working to fulfill weaponry supplies, weapon, weaponry supply requests, you know, for muskets, rifles, and who knows, maybe for uh, cannons as well, uh, pistols. These requests on behalf of the Continental Army, not just during the time that Robert Fulton uh, was growing up as a young boy, but really in a sense throughout the Revolutionary War's entirety. Uh, did Robert Fulton move elsewhere in Pennsylvania before reaching the age of 20? Does anybody think that uh, young uh, Robert Fulton moved elsewhere in Pennsylvania before reaching the age of 20? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, where do you think he would have gone? Did, would he have gone to uh, Philadelphia? Would he have gone to uh, Erie? Would he, would he have gone to uh, Scranton or uh, Pittsburgh? I think the answer is an obvious one. Uh, Philadelphia. I should point out, folks, that there is no... The territory, or what we now know as Western Pennsylvania, uh, that's still, um, that has not been uh, fully uh, claimed just yet. Because at one point in time, uh, part of Western Pennsylvania uh, was considered to be, um, really in a sense, uh, part of Virginia. Uh, but basically it was a wilderness uh, territory. So yes, Robert Fulton, around the age of 17, goes to Philadelphia and uh, he gets apprenticed to a jeweler named Jeremiah Andrews. Fulton's jewelry tasks would have included um, such uh, assignments as decorating lockets and pendants with human hair. Believe it or not, folks, there were people who did that stuff. And this would have involved um, decorating lockets and pendants with human hair um, that would have revolved around uh, deceased family members. But come 1785, he did something uh, that was a first. He record uh, around 1785. Historians know that he um, that per uh, records found that the first known recorded miniature painting of Fulton uh, was um, noted on record. By the age of 20, Robert Fulton had done eight miniature uh, painting works. Could be fair to say that Fulton is on to something uh, that's big. It may not be engineering just yet, but as I said earlier, you got to start somewhere. 
Now, Robert Fulton lived in Philadelphia for six years. From his various artistical works, per the amount of money earned, uh, young Robert sent what he could back home to support his mother. That's nice, considering the circumstances that the family was left um, in the aftermath of their uh, father's uh, passing. It was between 1785 and 1786 that Robert Fulton purchased a farm at Hopewell uh, Township. And I checked to see if that place was still in existence, and it is. Hopewell Township is in Pennsylvania, folks, but it's not outside of Philadelphia. It's in the opposite side of um, the state of Pennsylvania, being on the outskirts of uh, Pittsburgh, a.k.a. Western Pennsylvania. Hopewell Township is in Washington County. Of course, when Fulton uh, purchased this farm, uh, there was no Washington County at that time. But of course, it is fair to say that Washington County is named after Mr. George Washington. And there is a place in Western PA called Washington, PA. And I should point out also in Western Pennsylvania that there is a um, university, or college rather, I should say, that's known as Washington and Jefferson University. We know who that's named after, folks, Mr. George Washington and Mr. Thomas Jefferson. So uh, Robert Fulton purchased this farm in Hope, at Hopewell Township in Washington County. And believe it or not, folks, he purchased it for 80 pounds. Does anybody want to know what 80 pounds of money would be equivalent to in today's uh, modern-day um, dollars? Is it the equivalent of uh, $10,000? Is it the equivalent of 20000 Or is it the equivalent of $12,708? The answer is choice C, $12,708. It's amazing how, what one purchased uh, back in colonial times and then compare it to, to, to today's time and you, you know you have to ask you have to say to yourself boy the amount of money that was uh, spent on this uh, particular um, item in colonial times was a lot of money for its time to be spending on but then again not everyone had the same access to money in terms of what they could afford and perhaps what they couldn't afford based upon uh, the greater status of where they fell in uh, society. So the farm, um, it is fair to say that young Robert Fulton is very generous with his money. He's not um, blowing it in any way. He's thinking about his uh, greater family as a whole. As a whole. So this um, farm that he bought was for um, his mother and siblings to now call home. Well, um, what, let me ask you all this question. Does Robert Fulton get acquainted with any um, other artists, or I should say artists who are of a high-profile status? Uh, the answer is yes. Robert Fulton does get acquainted with, um, with, a, a, with um, more than one artist who is of high-profile status, but there is one in particular that I thought was definitely worth mentioning. The um, artist that Mr. Fulton gets acquainted, to, gets acquainted with is um, his name is uh, Benjamin West, and it just so happens that uh, Mr. West knew uh, Robert's father, uh, being Robert Senior. Mr. West did work for King George III, including uh, tutoring and sponsoring young American men aspiring to become artists. Well, is it fair to say that uh, Mr. West 
is from England, especially knowing that he has done uh, work for King George III and his family? Yes. On the other hand, I think it's great to know that Mr. West has kept an open mind, knowing that he would like to uh, mentor young men, young American men, regardless of their loyalties, in wanting to become an artist, or become artists for that matter. It was in the spring of 1787 that Robert Fulton arrived into London, England, where he began taking up artistical work studies under um, Mr. Benjamin West. So, I'm sure many of y'all are probably wondering, you know, how long does Robert Fulton um, remain as an artist before deciding that maybe it's time to switch careers? Well, we're going to find out some more information here in a moment as to um, what, um, what road he's going to take. Did Robert Fulton attain his share of success in the field of artistry, or art, I should say, during his time away in Europe? Well, the answer is a definite yes. However, come the start of the 1790s, Fulton had reached a point where he felt truly uh, believed that there was nothing left to prove under his current craft, that is being that of artist. So he's, he now realizes that he needs to chart a new career course. Hey, it's fair to say that people living in 18th century times um, made career switches. You know, Thomas Jefferson was only a lawyer for about three years, and he decided that it was no longer for him. And those of you who were with me um, when we did um, Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800, that was something that was discussed, that Jefferson was only a lawyer for a short period of time. So the bottom line is, is that some of our um, famous people, some of the famous people we've learned about, or whether it's through school or reading books about them, we've come, we come to realize that, hey, even they, um, as successful of a statesman that they might have been, or as successful of of an engineer or invent, general inventor of things, uh, we have to be reminded that uh, the, they either uh, started out doing something else, or they um, switched careers and found a different path that brought them uh, more success and happiness. So, I guess uh, the bigger question is going to be this: uh, where do where does Fulton go in terms of career course? Is it going to be anything that pertains to being an engineer? Yes. Is it fair to say that the field of engineering is more than just one focus or one um, area of study? Yes. Well, when I think of engineering, I think of uh, electrical, civil, mechanical, aerospace, uh, aeronautical, uh, ceramic, uh, meta uh, metallurgical, environmental, I mean, uh, Bio, uh, biomedical engineering. I mean, the list can go on and on with engineering. So, do you think that uh, for Robert Fulton, his um, focus on engineering is going to involve anything that's uh, transportation related? Yes. I mean, after all, we've talked about steamboats from the previous uh, podcast, so... It, it's got to be transportation related and something that would pertain to boats. I mean, boats move along water, don't they? Yes. But is it fair to say that boats go, um, when it comes to moving along water, that it's more than just uh, oceans and rivers? 
Yes. So this leads me to the next uh, question that's going to be involve two parts. Uh, the first part of the question is the following. What exactly is a canal? You all know what canals are, don't you? Well, if there are people out there who don't know, uh, this would be a good time for me to tell you exactly what a canal is. Uh, for starters, a canal is a man-made waterway. Okay? So think about that. There are, there are engineers who design um, a canal, and there are uh, workers who go about constructing, help assist with constructing a canal. So a canal is a man-made waterway, but not only is it a man-made waterway, what do canals enable boats and ships to do? Canals enable boats and ships to pass from one body of water to another. Think of canals being uh, man-made waterways is like the equivalent of an interstate highway. You know, interstates can um, link up with one another. Uh, just like canals can. Here's the second part to the question. Why were canals constructed? I mean, canals are used for a variety of reasons, but does anybody want to know why canals were constructed? Well, canals were devised, or rather I should say built, largely due to the fact that as man-made waterways, canals provided greater economic consistency behind transporting goods and commodities of larger sizes or what we might think of as heavy bulk quantity sizes. In other words, before canals came along, say in America, for example, people were people turned to roads or they relied upon roads to, um, to do just about everything. That doesn't mean that roads will be completely eliminated when canals come about in America. But the thing, though, is, is that, you know, when, you're, um, when you have goods on a horse and buggy, you can't put a whole lot of goods on a horse and buggy. They can only handle but so much. But when you are transporting um, goods on a um, ship that goes along a canal, is it fair to say that the ships can accommodate anywhere from, say, 50 tons of material and, say, up to 100? Yes, they sure can. So the bottom line is, is that canals, because canals provide uh, economic consistency, that means that there's going to always be a greater likelihood that larger quantities of uh, goods will be able to um, sail along bodies of water um, much more efficiently and cut down on uh, greater uh, costs by road, not just short term, but long term. So in other words, why were canals constructed? It's because due, it's due to the fact that as man-made waterways, they provided economic consistency behind transporting goods and commodities of larger sizes that, that the standard, or I should say that the basic of roads, simply could not accommodate over short and long haul um, periods. So we have to think about um, the greater good for economic purposes, uh, short and long term, and that with the use of canals, it will help uh, people um, meet their uh, quotas, meet their um, deadlines, and, and worse, and, and better yet, when moving goods by canal, you won't have to worry about um, 
any unforeseen weather-related issues. Because think about it, folks. If you're trying to um, transport goods along the roads during the 18th and 19th centuries, and a rainstorm comes along the way, you're going to be the road could be washed out, and it might take about a week or perhaps up to 10 days before you might be able to um, use that road to get to um, what would be your final destination. Well, let's learn a little bit more about canals here because it is uh, important to know. Maybe I ought to ask you all this question here, but is it fair to say that Europe is well ahead of America canal-wise, even in the post-revolutionary war era? And would it be fair to say that Europe was ahead of America in terms of canals, um, in terms of the presence of canals prior to um, the 13 colony, thir prior to the 13 colonies uh, officially uh, declaring separation from England? The answer is yes on uh, both fronts. So uh, the, ne the next question here is the following. Uh, was England experiencing a canal revolution come the start of the 1790s? Yes. Uh, considering uh, within a four-year uh, span after 1791, Parliament approved, listen to this, folks, Parliament approved of 81 canal projects. That's something else, folks, 81 canal projects. Now, I do know in America, uh, prior to and um, after the American Revolutionary War, that one of our uh, forefathers he might as well have been considered the forefather of, um, of canal um, envisioning or um, the father of, um, of wanting to get the um, idea of canals uh, started in America. He had some uh, success, but it was short-lived through the uh, Potomac uh, Canal Company. That was uh, Mr. George Washington, the father of our country. George Washington was very concerned about um, our nation's national security going into around the time of, the, um, of when the Constitution was being debated that he went as far as uh, proposing that America um, uh, institute a series of inland waterways. These inland waterways, what we now know as canals, would link um, the Northwest. Um, they would... Um, be in the 13 colonies, but they would uh, somehow um, link their way into the uh, Northwest Territory, most notably in um, what we would think of as the Northern and Middle Colonies. Uh, what we now know is like present-day Buffalo, New York, uh, which is part of the Erie Canal, linking um, linking itself through, via the canal through, um, well, of course, the canal, the Erie Canal goes pretty much from the Hudson all the way to Buffalo. But the bottom line is these inland waterways would uh, link people and uh, transportation of goods from an east to west uh, direction. But they would eventually, um, the Erie Canal itself would eventually link to um, places where people would be able to uh, populate and establish settlements, most notably in the present day uh, states of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, part of that, that whole Northwest Territory. And basically, the goal was to have goods be sent into these uh, states so that, um, you know, to um, not only promote settlement, but most of all, promote commerce. In other words, more the greater the, ex the expansion via inland waterway use, the greater the likelihood that America's future can be better secured 
and that, um, that any uh, threats of national security would also be greatly reduced. So whenever you have, uh, whenever you think of uh, George Washington, you can also think of him as being the father of, um, of canals in America. He, didn't li he wasn't alive when the Erie Canal was constructed or fully opened, but we do have him to thank for uh, being the one who uh, laid the groundwork behind uh, America's uh, future in terms of inland waterway navigation. Now, England, it is fair to say that England is no stranger to canals as the presence of uh, canal existence in England alone dates back to the 16th century. But the uh, United Kingdom would become the first nation whom constructed a nationwide canal network, which enabled England to better support uh, an assortment of industries. And when I think of uh, if there was one industry that could come off the top of my mind or off the top of my head, it would be the coal industry. Okay, coal, that's a huge natural resource right there, folks. You know, when I think of coal, you know, coal is you know, used uh, primarily for heating and fuel purposes. So, you know, this is just one of many industries that uh, will benefit from a nationwide uh, canal network. But over time, this is going to help England do what, folks? It's going to help England become the world's first industrial power, resulting in the British Empire. You know, when I think of British Empire, I also think of uh, Britain having a, uh, you know, dominance over her subjects in terms of, you know, her subjects will only be allowed to trade with her. They're not going to be allowed to trade with Spain and France. That all commerce uh, coming from uh, the colonies has to go through England, and then England will ship the goods to their final destinations in the colonies. So it's think of it as a triangle. The colonies... Um, you know, make their goods, and then they um, have to ship them to England for England to um, not only um, acquire the goods, but if they are going to be sent to another colony on the, on the, um, within the 13-colony network, England will transport those goods on her vessels 3,000 miles back across the, ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, where they will go to their final uh, destination, whether it's in Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, New York. I mean, that's how it was, folks. It was a triangle. So, yes, uh, this will uh, allow um, England to become the world's first industrial power, resulting not only in a, a superior British Empire, but eventually uh, the Victorian era that would come in the early part of the 19th century uh, under uh, Queen Victoria's rule, um, where she ruled uh, England from 1837 to 1901. I should point out that there were, um, there were a few canals here in England that I thought were um, of uh, noteworthy importance to mention. In 1757, uh, not long after the Seven Years' War uh, begins, a.k.a. Fran French and Indian War, there was a canal known as the Sankey Canal, or the Sankey, yeah, the Sankey Canal, that's spelled S-A-N-K-E-Y. I don't expect you all to know this uh, answer, but the Sankey Canal, was that located outside of London, or was it located um, in northwest England? Now, the answer is choice B, in northwest England. 
uh, in North, it seems like Northwest England, based upon the research I did going into this uh, podcast, was home to an assortment of uh, canals. But then again, if you look at England and how it's laid out on the map, you've, uh, you've got Northern England, Northwest England, and London is down in uh, the southern part of England. So is it fair to say that you've got um, waterways that can run north and south? It makes practical sense, not just from a north to south direction, but once they reach their destination point in the southern um, part of England, then it's fair to say that the, that the goods going south, if they need to go 3,000 miles across the ocean to America, you've got a perfect route north to south and then send the goods all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. So the Sankey Canal uh, was England's first modern canal. And this uh, canal um, was, uh, is, can be found in uh, six um, of England's northwest uh, counties. Uh, the counties of Cheshire, Cumbria, Greater Manchester, Lancashire, Merseyside. And uh, this canal um, was, uh, not only was it um, England's first modern canal, but it was, first, uh, it was the first canal built during England's Industrial Revolution. It uh, connected St. Helens with Spike Island in Widnes, which became the center, or I should say the main hub for England's chemical industry. In 1761, the Bridgewater Canal opened in northwest England. Okay, another canal in the northwest part of the, of, uh, the country. This connected Runcorn, Manchester, and Lee, spelled L-E-I-G-H, which allowed for coal to be better transported from actual uh, coal mine stations to um, final destinations via waterway, most notably to Manchester, which was um, a leading industrialized city. So England is really taking advantage of canals, folks, and they are, um, and, and you have to wonder, um, when will America um, get the ball rolling on canals? Well, let's now uh, focus back on Robert Fulton, but uh, while he's living in England, uh, did Robert Fulton become caught up with all things canal-related? He sure did. Uh, come 1793 at age uh, 28, uh, Robert Fulton officially began his new career linked directly to canals. So he's not far from being 30 years old, but hey, at age 28, he's now um, got his... Um, I don't know if I'd say life refocused, but he's got a new focus on what he really, really wants to do. In November of 1793, Fulton wrote a letter to the Earl of Stanhope. Now, when, when anybody hears of uh, someone being the Earl of, let's say, the Earl of Stanhope in England, an Earl is a very, very uh, prestigious honor. Uh, the late Princess Diana's father uh, was an Earl, um, in case you all uh, were uh, wanting to we're wondering to know in terms of uh, royalty and all that. So most uh, people who are in royalty, they probably have a relative or a or an ancestor who was an earl of uh, something. So um, in November of 1793, yes, Robert Fulton wrote a letter to the Earl of Stanhope uh, questioning pr a proposal on the table, that of the Earl of Stanhope's. This um, Fulton questioned... Um, the use of locks on a canal linking the Bristol and English channels through uh, Devon. 
Do any of you all know what locks are? They are devices that raise and lower boats between different levels on a river and canal waterways. So think of it as kind of like, in some ways, I don't know if like a roller coaster, you're going up on one level and then all of a sudden you're taking a huge drop. And then you're going back up to where you were uh, like on even level and then all of a sudden it's another drop. So with canals, you start out going on one level, but then as you are going downward on a downward incline, you're going to um, have a, your, the locks could change on you. And then if you're going upward against um, the current, then, you know, a lock will probably change on you again. So think of, um, you know, locks as, uh, you know, hidden devices that will raise and lower uh, boats. So for Robert Fulton, he countered with a proposal of his where uh, tugboat canals with inclined planes using counterweights would go about pulling the canal boats in and out of Devon. Well, as valiant as, as valiant of a proposal that Fulton came up with, it did get denied. It was rejected from those above, most notably the Earl of Stanhope. Well, I, I will tell you all this uh, now, and I will probably tell it to you again. Robert Fulton is uh, a man on a vision. But by being uh, a man on a vision, that's also going to mean he's going to be one who will be persistent and will um, demonstrate perseverance even when he gets kicked um, kicked around. In other words, there will be those whom will shoot down his proposals, but he will keep getting back up and fighting until he knows that he has achieved what he has set out to do all along. So in 1794, where did Robert Fulton move to, including um, whom he met? Well, Robert Fulton moved to Manchester, England in 1794, so that means he would have moved to the northwestern part of uh, the country, where his mission centered upon gaining more knowledge behind, uh, canal, behind canal engineering within England. It was in Manchester where he met a gentleman named Robert Owen, who was a textile manufacturer from Wales and who uh, became a socialist reformer for his time. I'll mention uh, something again about uh, Mr. Owen here in a moment, but it was in Manchester where Robert Fulton designed a canal digging machine where horses would be pulling debris from the ground bottom. And not just that, but he was he had also he also drew aqueducts for canals. So is it fair to say that Robert Fulton is already um got blueprints designed, yes. It was at age 23 that Robert Owen, you know, think about it, he's age 23, folks. He's only 23 years old, and in 1794, he is, Robert Owen is the manager of a Manchester cotton mill. He went about investing money in Fulton's canal digging machine, an inclined plane system, uh, but sadly Fulton saw no success, and <laughs> believe it or not, folks, it wouldn't be for another three years until Mr. Owen finally saw a profit return, and it didn't really amount to much, but there again, some people in today's time might think of that as a scam or just a quick-rich scheme, but it never really uh, materialized. 
In March of 1796, uh, Robert Fulton wrote an article titled the following, A Treatise on the Improvement of Canal Navigation. What did this uh, treatise um, focus on, folks? Well, I mean, I didn't mention the title, A Treatise on the Improvement of Canal Navigation, so obviously it's going to talk about the need to improve um, existing um, existing uh, stuff with regards to canals such as existing lock formations including inclined planes and how boats with wheels would move going downward and the article itself sought to get America's attention behind the greater value for small canals and what their impact meant for industrialization. So for Robert Fulton it's an article yes onto itself but it's really more about getting America uh, up and going in terms of how to go about improving her um, existing state of trans transportation, but how America can be improved going forward so that um, one day from now she will become an industrialized powerhouse. Well, Robert Fulton went as far as writing letters to Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin and to President George Washington requesting that small canals be built. The letter to, that he wrote to Washington proposed that the federal government construct a canal going from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, east to west. That would have been good for its time, especially knowing that uh, Pittsburgh is not far from uh, present-day Ohio or from present-day West Virginia, so that would, be, that would have been a great way to connect the easternmost terminus of Pennsylvania being Philadelphia with the state's westernmost terminus, Pittsburgh, but also being able to um, transport the goods into uh, territories west of Pittsburgh, uh, west of the Allegheny uh, Mountains, into what we now know as present-day Ohio and West Virginia. So yes, for Robert Fulton, uh, he has um, you know, he's taking even some bigger steps by writing to people, not only on the state level, but the federal level. So uh, for Fulton, um, he viewed canals as more than just national works. You know, to me, you know, canals are, are almost like natural wonders onto themselves. But for Robert Fulton, canals are, in his eyes, work projects, or what we, what we could think of as part of what was existed during the Great Depression era of uh, Works Progress Administration. But for uh, Fulton, yes, the um, canals are uh, work projects where, where he sees these projects um, as ones that ought to include the greater public. The greater public being investors and people who have money, people who, like philanthropists, people who can give money for the greater good uh, towards a cause that will help um, that will help uh, better um, that will help better not just a community but perhaps a greater country uh, short and long term. So these work projects where greater public where the greater public being the investors could participate in using their own money along with partnering up by doing uh, partnerships, what we would call public uh, private partnerships, involving the federal government, resulting in greater awareness behind improving America's status. Given um, by the late 18th century, 
she was nowhere near achieving the status of that of being an industrialized nation. And the same would be said going into the start of the 19th century when that time comes. Because remember, folks, you know, post-Revolutionary War era, America is still an agricultural uh, nation. And she'll still remain that way going into the 19th century. But it's going to take time before America will truly ever become a giant industrialized uh, nation. If I were to tell you that answer now, then, you know, people would say, well, what's the point in continuing this uh, podcast series, Kirk? But the bottom line is, is that Robert Fulton sees uh, canals as more than just national works. They must be projects that involve the greater public uh, where uh, people will um, see for themselves the greater value behind uh, canals and what they can do for America. In other words, for Robert Fulton, canals can help make America great. Canals are the key to going forward. Because if we don't go forward with our transportation, then how are we going to ensure that our borders, being the frontier, are going to be protected short and long term from um, Indian raids? Well, uh, that wraps it up for this uh, podcast se- for this podcast segment. And uh, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to um, learn more about Fulton's time in Europe. We might be uh, surprised to know that he's going to be in another European nation. But when I'm on the air again next, I will tell you exactly what European uh, country that will be and what um, what other ideas he has in mind because um, Fulton is on a mission, folks. The fire of his genius. It hasn't stopped now, and the possibility of it stopping anytime soon is very unrealistic. You know, After all, he's on a mission. He's on a mission to do something that's grand, something so, so spectacular that has, that has been tried before, but has come up short. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time. And if I'm not on the air again uh, prior to Sunday, uh, wherever you all are in the world, have a great Easter holiday. Uh, thank you um, for being such great listeners. Uh, without you all, I don't know where I would be. Take care and stay safe.